0: Gospel with Dr. Halista Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. This is Torah portion Naso, which means to lift up. There's a a census involved here. But what I'm going to do is skip to a part of the Torah portion that if we understand this Torah portion, the elements of it, and we also understand the, the problem with the golden calf and why Moses would have ground up the gold of the golden calf and asked the people to drink it as a kind of a trial, then I think we can catch on to what John is talking about in the book of Revelation, when he talks about wormwood. So that's what we're going to pursue today. We're going to try to find out why is this star called wormwood falling out of the heavens? And why would it be that a third of the, the springs and the rivers would be poisoned? Who's being poisoned? What's being poisoned? We're going to go back to the Torah portion now. So, and it's going to give us some guidelines here. So let's let's read that passage right quick. And it says, uh, and where we are, we are in Numbers 5. And we'll start with verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has relations with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she remains undiscovered, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act, and again, if she had been caught in the act, that would bring a different set of, of circumstances. He says, if an attitude of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if an attitude of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring as an offering for her a tenth of an ephah of barley meal, And this has a great context with some of the things we we looked at starting with Passover and the angel with the sharp sickle and the reaping and so forth. Barley is thought to be livestock food, right? So we've been over that. It says, he shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of reminder, a reminder of wrongdoing. Then the priest shall bring her forward and have her stand before the Lord and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware container, and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let down the hair of the woman's head and place the grain of, the grain offering of minder in her hands. That is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. And that's our tip. That's what we're going to be looking for in Revelation the water of bitterness that brings a curse. And the priest shall have her take an oath, and she'll say to the woman, if no man has had sexual relations with you, and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness as you are under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If, however, you have gone astray, though under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has had sexual intercourse with you then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse and the priest shall say to the woman may the lord make you a curse and an oath among your people by making your thigh shrivel and your belly swollen and this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach to make your belly swell up and your thigh shrivel. Do you see how he repeated it? That's going to be important when we look at Babylon the great has fallen. Fallen, because what happens, your belly and your thigh will fall. As you're looking into the Hebrew, that's the understanding. They'll they actually fall. And the woman shall say twice. She'll say, "Amen, amen." Just like Babylon the Great has fallen, fallen. Your belly and your thigh will fall. Uh, I think we're reading here from the NASB. Other versions may literally say, uh, "Your belly and your thigh will fall." All right, but this, that, that phrase, um, Babylon, the greatest fallen, fallen, you can see the context of it right here. So again, that reading, for not so, we started with Numbers 5, verse 11, and we read through verse 22, right? And it actually continues. You could read on through verse 23, and you go through 31, right? Because it goes into more detail about this grain offering of jealousy and so forth. And we see that if she's innocent, then she will bear children. If she's not innocent, then the belly and the thigh will fall. So she will either bring forth good fruit, or she will become subject to a curse. Now, another way of looking at this is that as the rabbis are reading the text, what they understand about it is that when the woman says amen, amen, She's also pronouncing this on behalf of the the presumed partner in the adultery. It's understood that even though she's the one on trial, that whatever happens to him, to her, will happen to him at exactly the same time. It's just that he can't refuse the trial. If if she's on a suicide mission and, and she refuses to confess her guilt, And to take the certificate of divorce in her hand and and be sent on her way, if she says, no, I want to go to trial knowing she's guilty, then she's pretty much on a suicide mission and he cannot stop her. And so if they're guilty, then he will also suffer the same fate as she does. Uh, So she says amen for herself and she says amen for him, just like we get Babylon, the greatest fallen, fallen. Well, we've got um, both the woman in Revelation who is riding the red beast, but we also have the beast himself. Uh, or if you want to look at it in the context, uh, the, the message to Thyatira is Jezebel. Well, you don't have a Jezebel if you don't have an Ahab. They, they have to work together. They're codependent. And so this Amen, Amen is going to include both partners. That's understood. We're going to switch over right here. And we want to take a look at the poisonous fruit in the wormwood so in order to do that we're going to have to match the trial of the sota not soda but the trial of the sota and this is the trial of the woman accused we'll have to match what we're reading here in the Torah portion not so with some other passages of Torah and then that'll lay a very good foundation Not just for helping us understand revelation, but again, understanding these beast kingdoms that are going to be brought low by the footsteps of Messiah. When these iron and clay feet that are standing upon the systems of the nations, when they're judged. And so the poisonous fruit in the wormwood is going to be one of the signals during the footsteps of Messiah that these feet are about to be shattered, about to be smashed, by King Messiah. So we wanna take a quick tour to kind of jump off the starting gate here, jump out of the starting gate. Remember, we're we're looking at the context of the nights of exile, the night watches, what's happening in the night watches. And in these past lessons, we've looked a little bit at different people who have personified the one whom Israel was seeking. And of course, the culmination of it is King Messiah, but there were several prototypes in history, like Moses, like Joshua, like Daniel. And Daniel is of particular interest because Daniel is the one who described the beast kingdoms to us in such explicit detail. What we have to kind of tease out of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, Daniel is very clear about what he sees, Even though it's sealed up until the end, even though it's obscured and there's lots of interesting ideas about how Daniel obscured this information until the end. Nevertheless, he's still giving us maybe the most concise description of the beast kingdoms. So we've worked through some of these deliverers of the beast exiles. We go back to the serpent kingdom or the crocodile kingdom uh, of Egypt. And then we looked at the gold head, Babylon, then Medo-Persia and Greece, and then Rome, and then all the systems of the world that have now been infected by the the spots of the leopard that Rome perfected. And and I'll be more specific with that in just a minute. We say, what spots are you talking about? Yeah, we want to be very precise about these spots. Uh, so that we understand how we're literally surrounded by the the leopard spots of the beast. But it's because of Daniel, because even in the night of the exile, Daniel was so influential, not just with the Jews, not just with his own people, but he was also very influential with two of these beast kingdoms, really three. If you saw Medo-Persia as kind of the twins kind of the the Ephraim and of of that particular beast kingdom, the Medo-Persians were the bear, but Daniel lasted from Babylon through Medo-Persia, and that's pretty good. He was able to maintain his identity, not to be spotted by the beast kingdoms, but to maintain integrity and to encourage not just his own people, but also to encourage the peoples that he ruled over when the kings would appoint him. And so we've got Babylon past. Then we have Daniel prophesying during the era of the Medo-Persians. And then he prophesies of a kingdom to come that looks like a leopard. He, He was prophesying in a bear kingdom, but he's prophesying of the leopard to come. And this is this leopard. Part of the problem with the leopard is not only did it control the places of the Jewish diaspora, but it also controlled them within their own land, even though they had been allowed to return to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. Nevertheless, their influence, their spots were so strong that there was even a a population that rose up that we hear referred to in the New Testament as the Greek Jews, where they took on many of the systems of the Greeks who ruled over them. And then you had significant populations in the diaspora in places like Alexandria, Uh, Paul was from Tarsus. That tells you that there has been significant Hellenization is what it's called, Greek or Hellenized Jews. And they were were more in danger as we find out In the books of the Maccabees, where we get the story of Hanukkah, they were actually more dangerous than the Greeks themselves because they were assimilating into Greek sports, Greek philosophy, and so forth. And with that, of course, comes all the trappings of idolatry. Now then Rome comes along, this conglomerate beast having characteristics of the preceding beast kingdoms, and it does what? It perfects the spots of the Greeks So we went through Babylon, we went through Persia, and we went through Greece really fast. Uh, But we're so interested in Rome. Here's what Daniel says. He says, after this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. So you can see Rome was a conglomeration. It inherited all the, I don't want to say the good things, but all the the remarkable things of the kingdoms that preceded it, like the the Babylonian lion, except Rome gives this lion iron teeth. It has the crushing strength of a bear's paws. It has this terrifying speed of a leopard to chase down anybody who might escape. So it, it controls huge, just vast amounts of territory all the way up into what we would call Great Britain today. So it's going to plant spots or populations, organizations, systems all across its empire. But yet what a spot does is it becomes camouflage. It hides the leopard while it hunts. So Rome inherits characteristics of all three of these preceding beasts yet it is much more terrible than they so it this fourth beast embodied Rome right and we also note if we read the full book of Daniel that the beast is a man even though we're looking at separate beasts they're one man uh, they're one image of a man. Because we saw that in King Nebuchadnezzar's golden man image. And we saw in Daniel's vision that this lion is going to have eagle's wings. You can see these all through archaeological uh, digs. Look at some of the, the photos and so forth. But when he sees the conglomerate image of the beast, the body is that of a leopard Right? And we know Greece was the leopard kingdom. And this is what they did. They corrupted Jewish life and practice. They would start with assimilation, then they would go to coercion, and then they would go to outright murder for keeping the commandments of the Torah. So the systems that they implanted, wherever they conquered, they became the camouflage, just like the systems with which they hunted Israel. Just sucking them into their philosophical systems, their educational systems, their even their bathing systems. Sports was a big attraction. The gymnasium, the drama. If you've ever looked at any archaeological pictures of the, the near and the Middle East, there's uh, dramatic theaters all over the place. How did we get so attracted to going to the movies? Uh, well, the spots go way back, all the way back to Greece. So these are their spots. They offer organizations, gatherings, uh, systems, leagues, brotherhoods to entice the people groups they want to dominate into them voluntarily. And that's what Rome did. They just appropriated the Greek spots. They took the Greek gods, the Greek literature, the medicine, philosophy, education, government, sports, military tactics. It just goes on and on. Even language. Um, The spots, (laughs) they might have pinned Latin language on there, but they're really just the Greek spots. They just incorporated the gods of conquered nations. And so that kind of shows you the progression of the beast kingdoms In the nights of exile. So in a sense, you have the exiles outside of the land, and then under the Greeks and the Romans, at least partially under the Romans, you had your exile inside the land. You lost control of the most important biblical systems. They became infected or Hellenized under those systems, the leopard spot. So that's what Greece offered Rome. That's why the the leopard's body is the, the substance of Rome. Even though it's an iron kingdom and it put iron teeth into the mouth of the lion, still it's the Greeks who perfected systems and organizations. And therefore the Bible is going to give us a background to help us understand why Daniel would have seen the body of the beast as a leopard. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard, his spots? Then you as well can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So in this passage, Jeremiah is reminding the Israelites, look, you're a covenant people. At your core, you are a covenant people. Why are you trying to be idolaters? Why are you why are you why are you doing the works of idolatry when that's not who you are? He says an Ethiopian doesn't try to change his skin. A leopard doesn't try to get rid of his spots. It's who they are. They're not ashamed of it. So why are you ashamed of your covenant status? Why are you ashamed to be a commandment keeper? Why are you pretending to be a covenant breaker? Right? So the The idea here is he's pointing out to us spots are joined together with the actual coat of the leopard. They're inseparable. Those spots are never going to fade, right? so they're they're very important as we try to understand why is the leopard the body of the beast? Well, it's it shows us the methods because a spot is chavabrot. The leopard spot, and it comes from which means to join um, specifically to fascinate. So it has a one connotation can be to uh, charm by means of spells. Now, it doesn't have to mean that. that. That is one meaning. But there is one aspect of it. It's it pulls you in by fascinating you. It charms you in with something that is intriguing, that looks fun, to couple together, to have fellowship with. You know, uh, remember what we're warned, don't have fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. Don't join up. So um, is to join yourself together to an organization or a league, and there is some aspect of that organization that will you will find charming or beneficial or fascinating why do we go to stadiums? Why do we go to gymnasiums? Why do we go to theaters? They charm us in. They fascinate us. They offer us something that is interesting. Why do we join certain organizations? There is a benefit. Because there is a benefit, we join up. Now, is every organization bad? No, not by any means. It's not saying that it's saying when this organization is being used to charm you in, in order to control you and to eventually assimilate you so that you will depend upon that system instead of the Holy One of Israel. And and it's just another delivery method of idolatry. When we put more trust in our medical system than in the healer, we have a problem. You know, it's, if we allow these systems to take the place of, I mean, you can see the consequences today. Israel was supposed to support its poor and its needy. That's commandment. But when we fail to do that and we pay off the government, we, we gladly hand them our tax money so they'll take care of the, the poor and the needy. And that way we don't have to be bothered. Now you can see the consequences of that. Now we're paying the price for that, for not taking care of our own poor and needy. Now we're paying way more than is necessary to get way less in terms of results. So this is the leopard's body. It's covered in spots. It's a charmer. It's a magician. And it invites the peoples to join up. Now, what if you don't want to join up? What if you don't want to ally yourself or to unite with? One of these systems. Well, we could see in Daniel's vision the end result. Rome will put iron teeth into its promises. Remember the the feet, the iron and clay are the feet. It's these systems of Rome that have invest have infected the world, governments, all their systems. Right? So it primarily wants to use government as the controlling system, but it will use all of its systems joined together to charm and assimilate you. And so they will start with the charm, with the fascination. If you will join willingly, well and good, you're assimilated. And then you will begin to rely upon, you will shift your trust and your faith from the one who created you into the system of the beast. If they cannot charm you, they will coerce you if they cannot coerce you then they will consume you this is where you get the iron teeth of the lion if they cannot charm you or coerce you then yes they will consume you they will try to destroy you so again their their goal is subjugation remember the the plot from the tower of babel it was never destroyed it was scattered, made weaker, but those forces are still at work out there. And as they understood at the Tower of Babel, that if they stuck together, that they could build their tower up and they could basically invade heaven and take over authority in heaven, at least one level of it. That's a different conversation. But have they given up on that idea? Absolutely not. The leopard spot as used and perfected by Rome, and as we still see in the feet of Rome, they're still being used to try to unite people into their systems, right? And remember, if they can't charm you into it, if they can't coerce you into it, then they'll bring the sword, right? So let's go to Revelation 13, one through six, where John this time is looking at the beast. It says, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads. And on his horns were 10 crowns. And on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. There's our leopard body again. His feet were like those of a bear. He's got the strength of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The, the mouth of the lion is arrogance, by the way. If you check... Uh, the prophecy against the king of Babylon, I believe in Isaiah 14, you can see the arrogance that comes out of the mouth of the lion, which is the king of Babylon. And then, of course, Babylon is, quote unquote, resurrected in the book of Revelation, because Babylon the great is going to fall, fall. Babylon the great, the adulterous partner, and Babylon the great, anyone who has committed adultery with him, they will fall, fall. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and, the, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been fatally wounded and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They served the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast. They served the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? A mouth was given to him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemes against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. So it sounds as if, because the Hebrew cognates to the Greek for tabernacle, Greek is skene, we know ohel, mishkan, and sukkah. Those are Hebrew cognates. So it sounds like we said last week, as if being gathered into the wilderness is going to be a preliminary uh, step it's going to be a step just like it was in the wilderness before except this wilderness is out there among the nations and so what can we expect if we are in the wilderness of the nations do expect if you are keeping the feasts if you were part of the Ohel Moed, which is the tent of meeting that if you were keeping shabbat if you're doing your best to keep your covenant and not be assimilated into the leopard spots that you will be blasphemed, you will be. It's not a question of if you will be blasphemed along with the one whose covenant you were keeping. Just don't be surprised when that happens. You shouldn't be surprised. I don't know why we would be. And these arrogant words and blasphemies of the beast in Revelation thirteen, again they're going back to the blasphemies of the King of Babylon in Isaiah fourteen, uh, even all the way back to the serpent in the garden. So this red beast of Rome. Uh, Rome is also called the Red One because he's Edom. Rome is specifically associated with arrogance. The word Romi or "Rome" it has the numerical value of 256. And if we go back into the text of Daniel 8:22 through 23, the what is being translated as arrogance in those passages in English and Hebrew is aspanim and it has a value of 257. So that suggests that Rome has reached even beyond the highest degree of arrogance. Uh, Just a little symbolic idea there that helps us understand how arrogant and blasphemous this final beast is. So just a reminder, we've talked about this before and we'll probably talk about it again. When the beast emerges from the water, its power is less than when it emerges from the land. Just write that down in your, your principles and symbols notebook if you're keeping one. It's We've looked at this in more detail before. Um, we looked at it last week. But the summary of it is Psalm 80, verse 13. A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. Speaking of Israel. So, Rome was thought to be the boar from the forest. He was strong because he emerged from the land. And if you'll remember some lessons from way back, we talked about how Israel's idolatry, when King Shlomo, King Solomon, fell into idolatry toward the end of his reign, when he married the daughter of Pharaoh, then this is when Rome began to emerge. Began to acquire power, even though it's going to be hundreds of years before they appear on the world scene as a world power. This is said to be the beginning of the rise of Rome, because as Rome's strength increases, it's only because Israel's spiritual strength has decreased through idolatry and breaking their covenant. So when Israel turns away from idolatry and begins to keep their covenant, then they weaken the beast then it pretty much becomes more of a sea creature like the dragon that gave it its authority. It's the dragon is a more of a water creature. If you remember the the progression, Pharaoh passing off his authority to Babylon, which is how the serpent hands off his authority to the beast historically, Uh, same thing. If you think of the, the dragon being thrown down from heaven, well, there's water. There's That's because the Holy Spirit, one of the symbols of it is water, one is fire. But, uh, which we get that too in uh, a lot of old tales is a fire-breathing dragon. The dragon is more of a fire-water creature when we're looking at its symbolism. You throw it down on the land and it begins to lose its power. So when John's has this vision of the beast emerging from the sea, Then this authority is going to be passed to this last red beast who will battle Messiah the Prince, as as the prophets call him. Uh, He's going to be greatly weakened and he will soon die, just like any other aquatic creature that leaves the water. His adversarial actions, they will be defeated. Okay. But we kind of needed that review so we could understand. this review of Isaiah 21, one through four, because remember the wilderness and when they came out of Egypt was on the land, All right? It was specific geographic location between Egypt and Israel. But during the footsteps of Messiah, it's understood that there would be a wilderness of the sea. The sea represents the peoples and the nations. So it says the pronouncement concerning the wilderness of the sea. As, a windstorm of the Negev, as the windstorms of the Negev come in turns, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying, a harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously and the destroyer still destroys. What is he saying? Isaiah is saying that there should be more than one fulfillment of what we're reading right here, that there was a wilderness in the past, and just as the winds take turn prevailing in the wilderness, so will these beast kingdoms take turns prevailing over the earth. They're still, in other words, they're still going. They're still dealing treacherously. They're still destroying. So he says, go up Elam, which is another way of saying Persia, lay siege Medea. I have put an end to all the groaning she has caused for this reason, and it's referring to Babylon, um, that there will be an end to Babylon. For this reason, my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. This is where we sometimes hear the birth pangs of Messiah being associated with the footsteps of Messiah. He says, I'm so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. My mind reels or overwhelms me. The twilight I longed for has been turned into trembling for me. So they say this twilight, which twilight can be in the evening when the sun goes down, or it can be in the morning when the sun goes up. They're both twilight. But he says this twilight, this into the exile I hoped for is going to be a time of trembling. The, the important thing to remember though is he's associating it with the wilderness of the sea that we might be experiencing a wilderness journey even out there among the nations prior to the ultimate gathering. But the good news is that this arrival of twilight, um, this is a time when the morning star rules the sky, whether it's evening or morning. And remember the King of Babylon, he was also referred to the star of the morning the son of the dawn. That's what he wanted to be. He wanted to supplant the holy one. Instead, it is Yeshua who is the morning star. He is the one who obeys the holy one. He is the one who does whatever the father does. He says whatever the father says. We see the fullness of the father in Yeshua, right? So this king of Babylon, this blasphemous entity can no longer supplant but it will be a time of trembling, as Isaiah describes it. So, in Song of Psalms three two, it says, "I must arise now and go around in the city, in the streets and in the public squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I did not find him." So, this is Israel looking for her beloved bridegroom. She's lost her grasp on him. She's wandering around the holy city, and she's looking for her Messiah. Now, once she finds him, she's not going to let him go, right? She's going to hold on to him. She's not going to let him go. Uh, And this is one of the interesting prophecies, again, in the book of Daniel, because it occurred during the reign of Darius the Mede, talking about Medo-Persia in Daniel 6. And we saw how, because he was so persistent about praying in the direction of Jerusalem, even though he's in exile, and remember the night, it represents your exile. So when we see twilight, it can mean we're going into exile or it can mean we're coming out of exile. Either way, it's a trembling, right? There's going to be some harsh things that occur. Um, nevertheless, even after Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, he's protected. The lion's mouths are shut concerning him because the great thing is even though Daniel was thrown in there at sunset and let out at sun up, The Shomer Yisrael, the guardian of Yisrael, he never slumbers or sleeps. So he stayed up all night, (laughs) apparently babysitting lions. But remember, symbolically, the lion was Babylon, the king that was conquered by the Medes. So Daniel survived these exiles, these night seasons. He survived the regime changes. And The other rulers under King Darius, they turned on Daniel because King Darius was about to promote him over all the kingdom. In fact, they referred to Daniel as one of the exiles from Judah. And so they set a trap based on Daniel's faithfulness to pray toward Jerusalem. Daniel knew he was in exile. Daniel knew he wasn't a citizen of Babylon. Daniel knew he wasn't a Mede. Daniel knew he wasn't a Persian. He was a citizen of Jerusalem, and therefore he had no fear of the exiles or the night watches because of his prayers. Will people use your obedience against you when you're in exile? If Jerusalem is your focus, you can bet. You can bet. It's these night watches. They can be dangerous times, but just remember, the one who watches over Israel, he's not sleeping. Just because you're in exile doesn't mean he's asleep. He wants you to go looking. That's what the the beloved did. She goes and she looks for King Messiah in the city, in the night, in the exile. And she keeps looking until she finds him. So let's look at another passage from Isaiah 21.11. This is the pronouncement concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir, watchman how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire, come back again. Now, I don't know if you've ever isolated that passage and looked at the patterns of it, but can you see the couplets? Can you see almost the poetry with which this is written? Now, We have a watchman here, right? And so the watchman, he's a shomer. This is an equivalent expression to to the soveth. When the beloved goes around the city at night and she's looking for her bridegroom and she can't find him, she doesn't find him until she runs into the sovavim of the city. And the sovavim are the watchman, the night watchman of the city. And once she encounters the night watchman, those who know the appointed times of the night watches, when Yeshua suggests to us that he will return, then she finds him and then she grabs him and doesn't let him go, right? So an equivalent expression is going to be a Shomer, a watchman. And so she's running into somebody who knows exactly what time it is. And this passage in Isaiah 21, the person being inquired of is also a person who knows exactly what time it is. And this is why we want to keep the moa'dim. We want to know exactly what time it is. Now that doesn't tell us exactly when Yeshua is coming, but it definitely tells us the seasons and the watches in which we should expect him, right? That, those seasons and watches where we should maintain our preparation at all time. So we have the pronouncement concerning Edom. One calls to me from Sa'ir. Those are parallels. Edom is Sa'ir and Sa'ir is Edom. That's Rome. That's the red one, right? We, we, we might uh, recap it or you might go back into some of the earlier programs for a fuller explanation. But for now, I just want you to see the couplets. I want you to see the pattern. He says, watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? When you see a repetition, and in this case, repetition after repetition after repetition after repetition, then you have to understand you're likely reading something that projects over multiple fulfillments. In this case, it looks a lot like doubles. Edom and Seir, how far gone is the night? How far gone is the night? The watchman says... And remember, the watchman is the one who knows. He's the Shomer. Morning comes, but also night. What is morning? Morning is the end of the exile. Night is the exile. What is he saying? Well, there will be an end to the exile that Isaiah is primarily addressing, which is going to be the exile in Babylon. But then he says, but also night. Another exile will come after that. Did they go into exile again? You bet. The Romans exiled them again. So morning did come, the end of the Babylonian exile, but also the night. So, and then he doubles again. If you would inquire of the end of the Babylonian exile, inquire. If you would inquire, inquire. Inquire when is the end of the Roman, the Edom, the Seir exile. And then he says something almost cheeky. He says, come back again. Come back again. Makes you think of Yeshua. Come back again. Come back and help us with Edom and Seir. And this is what the prophets say that Messiah will come from Seir with his garments dyed in blood. Right. So you, as I've broken it apart here on the the PowerPoint presentation, you can see it more easily. Is once you break it up like that into the couplets, it's easier to see. Right, and we'll look some more at that particular passage later. Let's get into what's going on with the judgment on the beast. Now that we understand that, that Rome or Edom will somehow be part of the final exile. Right? And this is where I said we'd have to put parts of our Torah portion with bits of revelation and then a little bit from another Torah portion. So in Deuteronomy 29, 18, 29, 18 it says, uh, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman, a family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. That there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. So how do you do that? Amos 5.7 says, for those who turn justice into wormwood and throw righteousness to the earth. Amos 6.12 says, do horses run on rocks or does one plow them with oxen? No, you don't know either of those things. Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. What are they referring to? The covenant, the righteousness of the covenant, the commandments of the covenant. Here's the fuller context of Deuteronomy 29. It says, now it's not with you alone that I'm making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today, in the presence of the Lord our God, and with those who are not with us here today. You see the the couplet there? Do you see the projection? Not just those who are literally here right now, but there will be those who follow us, who stand and make this covenant and this oath. And he reminds them, for you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we passed through the midst of the nations through which you passed, makes you think of the wilderness of the nations, Moreover, you have seen their abomination and their idols made of wood and stone and silver and gold, which they had with them. In other words, you passed through these nations. You had a wilderness of the nations and you saw all their abominations and you had to keep going. You had to guard your eyes from them. He says so that there will not be among you a man or woman, family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go serve the gods of those nations, that there will be not among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. And it shall be, this is how you find poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will consider himself fortunate in his heart, saying, I will do well, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land along with the dry. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his wrath will burn against that person. There's the wrath of the And every curse that is written in this book will lie upon him, and the Lord will wipe him out, will wipe out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for disaster from all the tribes of Israel in accordance with all the curses of the covenant, which is written in this book of the law. So right there, you can see a mirror of the trial of the sotah. And it's not so specific as a woman can can, uh, accuse of adultery. It extends to all the covenant keepers, and says if they go out and they commit idolatry and abominations with the nations when they're out there walking in the wilderness of the nations if they get sucked into the leopard spots and begin to do idolatry it's because they have this root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood they're the breakers of the covenant it doesn't have anything to do with the nations at this point except that you imitated and assimilated into their ways this is aimed at the rebels and apostates among Israel. And this is why Yeshua says it's better to be hot or cold, because you're going to get thrown and lumped in when the curses come upon the nations who refuse to subjugate themselves to King Messiah. It's people who have stood to hear the covenant. They're in Intending in their hearts to infect the watered land, which is Israel in the Garden of Eden, with this dry, fallen earth that you see in the feet of the beast, and so this poisonous fruit and wormwood would grow. It would spread among Israel, but ultimately their names will be wiped out. So here's what Revelation 8, 10 through eleven says: The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The stars named Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the waters because they were made bitter. This is going to be a worldwide trial of the adulterous wife, the suspected adulterous wife. How will this infidelity be revealed, even though they've concealed it and kind of stood with everybody there? and pretended to be a covenant keeper, even though they said in their heart, I can still keep on sinning. And I'm not gonna be judged for this. They will be judged. And it looks to me right here like they may not even be aware of it. Somehow they're drinking these bitter waters. And then what's gonna happen? The curses, the judgment, the belly and the thigh will fall, fall. Their wormwood will be exposed. And it's going to be a third of the rivers and the springs of waters. Again, the, the idea here is that a huge number are being revealed, just like drinking the dust of the golden calf revealed the sinners among the Israelites so that they could be judged by Moses. The same thing's happening here. Going to be judged by the words of Moses and Yeshua is going to execute his wrath, not just upon the nations, but upon those who had an identity. They had had a citizenship. They had an association with Israel, with Jerusalem, with the feasts, with the Shabbat, with their creator. And yet, they didn't believe they had to keep his commandments, which define the covenant. You know, the the assembly of Thyatira was warned about this, the trial of the Sotah. And it's the woman accused of adultery. So she's going to be tested with bitter waters. And, you know, where it says waters, waters can suggest the nations again, perhaps entire nations, revealing the idolaters, revealing the adulterers, just as it happened at Mount Sinai when they drank the, the bitter waters of the golden calf. Instead, the righteous will be those that the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 3, speaks of. It says, in his shade, I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So when we take in the words of the Torah in obedience, those commandments become very sweet fruits. When we taste the commandments as sweet fruit, it's life that sweet fruit in the shade of Mount Sinai, that sweet fruit in the shade of the Mishkan, the tabernacle where Moses expounded the words. But see, if you have this bitter root, when you begin to taste the commandments, it will taste very bitter to you. The fruit will turn poisonous. And I've often wondered, how is it that that so many people who walk with us, the fruit's bitter, the fruit's poison. You know that didn't come from the life of the word. It didn't come from the spirit of the word. Where is all this death coming from? Where's all this poison coming from? Where's all this bitterness coming from? Well, it's apparently because there's still something in hearts that says I can keep this secret sin. I can still plan on sinning. I can stand here with everyone else. I can keep the feast with everyone else. I can keep Shabbat with everyone else. I can eat kosher with everyone else but yet there's something in my heart that makes me think I can go on sinning at the very same time. I can practice sin alongside righteousness. And he says, you're in worse shape if you do that. It's better to be hot or cold, much better. So this this great star in Revelation, it can be a principality or a power, uh, depends on your context in scripture. You have to know you know, the context you're reading from. But uh, typically, if we're talking about a star, it can be children of Abraham, or it can be a messenger, like an angel. It can be a principality or power assigned to a specific task on earth. Often the planets are associated with the dominion of a particular angel or, or entity that Adonai created to rule or to manage this particular dominion. But in Revelation, the third angel is the one taking action or pronouncing the action that's about to take place with the Wormwood, this great star called Wormwood. Wormwood will find Wormwood. And so symbolically, again, because it's the third angel, it makes us think of the third day of creation when the rivers and the springs appeared on that third day. And so with one third of the waters in this particular judgment becoming Wormwood, it tells us that most likely that a third of the nations are going to be judged because they have practiced idolatry. And along with them, along with this judgment, will be believers in this wilderness of the people. They witnessed the idolatry in those nations of their exile. And instead of maintaining their citizenship and their identity like Daniel did, instead they participated with it in spite of the covenant. They were charmed by the leopard spots. They were charmed by those organizations. And this is not who we want to be, right? We don't want to be this at all. We don't want to ever come to rely on any system the world has to offer as our source. Now, can you use these systems? Sure, absolutely. Unless at some point you see that they are seducing you into violating your covenant. If you have said, we will do and we will hear, then you can't turn around and instead say the exact same thing to the spots. Be careful of your oaths. Um, Be careful of your promises. Be careful what you sign to, because we always have to understand, again, where is our citizenship? Where is our faith? You're in the world but you're not of the world you might have a national citizenship but it must always be secondary to your citizenship in jerusalem above don't be seduced by the systems that appear intriguing thank you for exploring the torah portion with us On this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.